tell a story if you don't mind. Start, I'll try not to make it too long. I'd rather generally stay in the text, but I remember when a pastor who's a friend of mine named Brian Wolfmuller uh, got COVID. Whatever that means for him, it was a pretty intense fever for, for days. Um, and some of us who were close to him at the time had a, I was one guy, I had a conversation with him and I said, what's the world going to be like without our, you know, pastor Brian Wolfmuller, this, this great preacher, this great confessor of, of the gospel. And, uh, he said, I don't know. Because if you don't know, Brian's done just amazing work for people's hearts, not just in the Missouri Synod, but but across Christianity. Many other Christians listen to Brian's answers because he just explains the scripture so clearly. So in any case, Brian got better. Brian's doing well. He's pastor of St. Paul in Austin. It's a fantastic, healthy church at the center of a very liberal city. Uh, lots of interesting things there. But I remember talking to Brian after he got better. And initially, he was sort of like, you know, I, I went through this, and I think I need to clear my calendar, right? Which, which a, a near-death experience, I think, would do that for anyone. <laughs> Make you think, eh, what am I doing? Right. But he, he started to pick up speed again. He, he took on more media stuff, and, and pretty soon he was back up to speed. And, and he and I had a, an interchange at one point, and he said to me, yeah, you know, I kind of figured out we're supposed to not worry about it and just run toward the tomb. I thought, well, what an interesting thought, Brian. I'm supposed to not worry about avoiding death. I'm just supposed to go as hard as I can and until I die and not sweat it too much because he has risen. Hallelujah. So this idea of running toward the tomb is where we're going to be for a couple of weeks at least. And as we move through texts about what it was like for those who first ran to the tomb, Peter. And we're going to talk about Paul. We're going to look at Acts a little bit. We're also going to start laying the foundation of a bigger idea for our journey together as Christians here at St. Paul for however long it takes, uh, which is to think of our life together as a walk upon a road, a journey upon a path, or that Christianity is to be in the way. That is the way, the truth, the light of, of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to be moving again from the, the sprint to the tomb to what happens to those guys next to once they die, what now, and, and a little bit of, oh, where did they point us? Particularly when it comes to the language of the Old Testament about wisdom and the path of the journey that every Christian's on, uh, whether you know it or not, you're on the same journey, you're on the same, same path. So this, this all starts, of course, uh, kind of where we were last week with Mark's gospel and the ending of Mark's gospel, which Jesus doesn't show up. I, I guess it depends on which way you read the ending. And if you were confused by what I just said, go listen to last week's sermon. We went into it quite in detail. Uh, but you know, the end of the story is sort of like, well, what happens next? In John chapter 20, you can just kind of flip a few pages and see, well, here, here is what happens next. Um, and it's it's also filled with doubt and unbelief, just like Mark was trying to show us amongst the disciples uh, in, in his ending. Uh, let's look at it, though, together here then. So uh, if you haven't found your way to John chapter 20 in your pew Bible, it's on page 906. 
And I suppose today you could cheat and use your bulletin because we won't go too much past uh, this text. Actually, no, I lied to you. We, we're going to possibly skip ahead. So get, get in the Pew Bible if you can. Um, 906 is the page we're going to start on. And it's the first day of the week. Again, that's Sunday. We won't, won't belabor that point this week. Um, and Mary Magdalene, one of several women, uh, who some of whom we're not sure who, who they are. Uh, their stories uh, aren't always clear. Tradition tells us more than other things. Um, but she's one of them. She comes early to the tomb. Same story, right? It's still dark, right? Everyone's still in the whole Good Friday kind of feel of things, right? Uh, and she saw the stone had been taken away. John doesn't spend much time telling you about the seal, right? Or the, the size of the stone or any of that. She just sees the stones taken away and she ran. No angels mentioned. Right? Remember, there's angels in Mark. We, we should believe that they're there. They were there. John just doesn't want to tell us that part. But notice she runs away afraid. That, that is what happens next. And she runs here from the tomb. This is what she was told to do. And she goes to Simon Peter. Again, that's exactly what she was told to do in Mark's gospel. Um, and to this other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Um, do you remember, not everyone was here for the particular text. I mean, we went through the whole gospel of Mark in a short time. But did you catch the text about the young man who fled from the Garden of Gethsemane naked in Mark's gospel? Did you catch that one? And go by and like, what was that? <laughs> Yeah, so most scholars guess that that's sort of Mark's signature on the book. He's like, that that one was me. And I'm not going to tell you it's me because it's embarrassing what happened to me. I ran away naked from my Lord while he was betrayed, but I was there. So John has a similar way of kind of anonymously signing himself into the text, and it's by referring to himself as the one whom Jesus loved, which in English just kind of sounds arrogant, right? It really just sounds terrible. Um, it's, it's not what he means, I don't think, um, the way you would hear that in English. And maybe the easiest way to sum up what he probably means is if you can imagine a group of 30, 28, 42-year-old guys, and then there's this like 17-year-old. There's 12 of them, and one 17. Everyone else is like 25 or older, right? And that guy who's 17, well, the, the leader of the pack kind of, comes along and you know, hits him upside the head sometimes and says, hey, hey, follow me. I'll keep you, I'll keep you straight here, right? So there's like this relationship between Jesus and John that's unique, probably due to his youth. And that's what he means. So, you know, I was, was kind of Jesus' kid brother. You know, that's kind of what he means, I think. Right? But here he is, probably. I mean, uh, we assume it's John. It doesn't say it's John, but most of us assume it's John. Um, and he's there with Peter, and Mary tells them, look, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Amazing. She calls him the Lord, and yet she also doesn't believe he can rise from the dead. To call him the Lord is to call him God, is to believe he's the Messiah. It's a tremendous confession, and yet she thinks they stole the body, which is the first atheist or skeptic's commentary about you know, what happened back then, by the way. They'll always tell you, oh, the body was stolen. That, that theory doesn't hold a lot of water if you follow it, but we'll leave that for another time. She thinks the body's been stolen. Huh? And so, well, Peter, and he maybe thinks the same thing. I don't know. Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb, and there it is. Both of them were running. And here's where this metaphor of running is going to start with the good news of Jesus. Did you hear it? He's risen. Hallelujah. That response right there, that's running toward the tomb. That's it. You just did it. 
You believe. The hope that rises within you, the change in you from the other people of this world who don't have that hope, the distinction in your heart that lets you see past this failing present age and believe in a God who's greater than all of it, that's what made them run toward the tomb, even though they as yet didn't believe in the resurrection as he had proclaimed it. They didn't see why yet, but they knew this was something they had to move toward. They needed to get toward this empty tomb of Jesus Christ in order to figure out what was going on, right? And then that is for you the rest of your life. That's the promise of Christianity. You get to run toward the grave of Jesus Christ in order to arrive there understanding what's going on. To be brought into consolation with angels and archangels, to have all the company of heaven on your side wherever you go, To be born again as sons of the living God in this present age, that's to run toward the tomb. To know that this present age at best is a pilgrimage. And then that tomb, that other place that we're usually so busy trying to escape, it's just a nice cozy bed. Death is rest to you. That's what the Bible promises. That's what running toward the tomb means. It means I can go there without fear of anything there hurting me at all. The worst it will be is a pleasant nap. And the best it will be will be an instantaneous moment where in a twinkling of an eye, you turn into a resurrected body. I can imagine that'll wake you up in the morning. Uh, And so that's death for us now. This is why we say it's lost its sting. If you have a loved one die tragically, is it going to hurt? You better believe it's going to hurt. But the sting, the poison that stays inside and then goes further to cause corruption, that's gone. You can mourn as those who have hope because when the person you love goes into the tomb, it just means they got to be at rest with Jesus first. And that's where you're going. So you're not so concerned about losing them so much as having to wait, right? And and that's a different reality. Let me tell you, it is completely different to just believe you have to wait as opposed to believe it's gone. Someone pointed out at this conference, there have been 15 qualified, whatever that means, and I don't trust the media, mass shootings since January 1st of this year in the United States of America. What's going on? How can this be? My answer is you tell humans for two generations that they're animals and that there is no God. And what they're going to do is hurt each other. They're going to be sick and wicked. They're going to kill children thinking that they're doing the world a favor and then claiming that their own suicide is a godly thing. And if you haven't noticed, the more, most recent one, they even lauded the killer more than they have ever looked after those who were shot in the news stories. Why? Well, because they hate Christianity. That's why. <laughs> and we, we really do want to wake up to that. Not as if it should make us run away in fear. It should just make us be, okay, well, there's a world filled with some people who hate Christianity. This is just like the Bible. This is just like the Bible. Okay, here we are. What are we supposed to do? Run toward the tomb. What does that mean? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid at all. 
think of Peter and John that one morning. The tomb's empty. What? Let's go find out. So here you are facing what trial this week? I don't know. I don't know what your trial is this week. It might be a national trial like we all share, or it might be your own personal one. I'm pretty sure you got a few. I don't know. But I do know that thinking about that moment when Peter goes, what? I want. Yes. And that that is a promise from God to you this week. That whatever you face in Christ, you're going to be strengthened through that unto believing that he's got your back at all times and all places. So that on the day that your tomb does face you, again, you don't see it as the big threat that the rest of the world does, but you see it as a moment of reprieve. Or, I mean, they used to sing about it, right? You can lay down your heavy burdens at last. I don't know, guys. To me, that sounds kind of good sometimes. Lay down my burdens. They run together to the tomb. The other disciple outruns Peter. He's, he's younger. Uh, so that could be it. Uh, I don't know. Maybe he's real quick. Um, he reaches the tomb first. And and here's where John really starts to play with us. Uh, Over the rest of the Gospel of John, we won't read it all verse by verse, but if the the whole rest of the Gospel of John moves toward the idea that Peter's going to die. To the, almost right before the end, Jesus is telling him, like, you're going to be crucified. So, just so you know. know? And it's, it's, you know, decades later that this happens, but to Peter. And and we see this interplay between him and John where he gets a little bit kind of testy. He's like, well, what about John? You know, if I have to die on the cross, what's he get? And Jesus is just like, you don't get to know what, what he gets. But then in the, that whole picture now, we see twice John coming to things that represent death and not going in and Peter coming to things that represent death and diving in. So John runs to the tomb, empty tomb, empty tomb, empty tomb. Here we are. And Peter just flies past him, right into the grave. He's not worried. I'm going to the tomb. It's going to happen again with the miraculous fishing catch. They're out on the seashore. They see Jesus. He's barbecuing after the resurrection. Got to love it. He's barbecuing fish on the beach. Sounds like paradise to me. They see him over there. And John says, oh, that's Jesus. And Peter says, I'm in the water. And he dives out of the boat. Now, remember what I said about the Sea of Galilee? How it represents the great abyss, the portal of death and all these things? Right? So here he is. He's in the ship. Forget the ship. I'm going into death first. I don't care. I'm with Jesus. That's Peter running toward the tomb. And so here, here it is then. He's going to run in. Right, Verse 5. You know, stooping. This is John. Uh, stooping. He looks in. You get this really interesting uh, tidbit. He saw the linen cloths lying there. He did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him. And there it is. He went into the tomb. It's the normal word for went. But I really do like to picture him like, horizontal you know he's he's flying toward this thing as fast as he can uh so he goes in uh then he saw then these linen cloths that tidbit from before it gets more more information these linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on jesus head uh, not lying with the linen cloths but folded up in a place by itself um kind of a tangential topic but, but you're worth mentioning at least i know you've heard of the shroud of turin or Tyran, however you want to pronounce it. Um, it is this magical, uh, miraculous garment, uh, cloth, that in theory may have been uh, the one in which Jesus was wrapped. And the reason people think that is there's some sort of, I don't know, 
residue of his resurrection on the material that lets you see his face with laser scanners and things. Um, people like travel all over the world to go see this thing and really almost attribute to it miraculous powers in the present. It's very much a relic. Right? If you know what that word relic means, it's very much a relic. Um, I don't know what to think about the Shroud of Turin. Some of the scientific evidence with regards to the study of it is like, that's a weird thing, whatever it is. I mean, I don't know if it'll fall out of the sky. It's weird. Uh, but what I also know is that this text says there was more than one piece of cloth. And the Shroud of Turin is one piece of cloth. So whatever the Shroud of Turin is, it's, it's not everything that was there that day. I think that's probably the place to start. And then the fact that this other cloth is wrapped around the head specifically makes me wonder about a whole body single cloth. I've heard guys say, no, no, they used both. And okay, fine. I, I, it's not worth arguing about to me. That's the point. Like, let's not argue about the Shroud of Turin. Like, who knows? Jesus is going to be here in his flesh and blood today for you to eat and drink him. That you can take not to the bank, but to the gates of judgment day. Yeehaw, right? Shroud of Turin. I don't know. It's cool. If you like that stuff on the internet, just don't spend so much time on the internet in general. And, you know, but look up that. That's fine. Okay. Moving past it. Um, verse eight, right? The other disciple is going to die. John actually says that in his gospel. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. Does that mean that John didn't believe before that? Yep, it does. And in one sense, he's even going to say he doesn't quite believe fully yet uh, because the rest of the verse 9, for as yet they did not, they, plural, did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So somewhere in this, John goes into the tomb. He gets there, goes into the tomb. He sees that it's empty and he goes, is it true? And that's like the moment of belief he gets. It's like, is it true? But, but as yet, they don't understand. Now, that night, he's of course going to appear, show them his hands and his feet. They're going to marvel and cry and feed him some fish again. Uh, you know, all of these things. But, but here at this moment, uh, what's going on is hope, right? What's going on is hope. Why would you run toward your own death? I mean, let's pull back from this idea here. I'm really asking you as a human being this week to consider that your death is better than you think it is and that it's not something to stay away from. I don't mean kill yourself. I mean, just run toward the future without fear, knowing that God's going to take care of it. What would make you want to do that? And the only thing that can make you want to do that is if you actually believe it's going to be better on the other side. And so if you don't believe that, like if you're not like, oh, I'll run toward the tomb, or you're like, I don't know, I want to hold on to it. Well, that is just a tacit awareness. Grab it. No, you, you don't really believe it's going to get better. And then you say, well, what do I do, pastor? I found I don't believe it's going to get better after I die. Okay, you're fine. I forgave you. Like, like good. <laughs> like you're wrestling with your actual soul. Good. You found out that the carnal nature inside of you isn't so smooth and easy all the time. It has some real cantankerous edges. Okay. Good. Confess it. Say, Jesus, take it away. Jesus, make me repent. Teach me to see. Uh, teach me to run toward the tomb with joy. Uh, aware that it's just a portal. The sting is gone. I'm going to lay down the burden and go into paradise. Yeah. And the disciples went back to their homes. We're going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This will be on page 957 of your pew Bible to kind of take this 
into Paul's life. Now, again, we just heard about Peter. We're going to hear about Paul. Next week, we're going to hear about Peter again and his life in the book of Acts. The week after that, we're going to hear about Paul again and his life in the book of Acts. Uh, so we're, we're following these two guys, right? And it's all, again, very around this theme of running, but it's not just a theme. It's a fact. Peter ran to the tomb and dove into it. Right? It's a fact. Uh, Paul is now going to talk about how in his walk on the path of his life, under God, he has a perspective now because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that changes everything about the moments he uses day by day now, right? Um, and this is then going to begin at, well, let's start at verse 23. Um, there's quite a bit more going on in the context. Paul in both Corinthian letters is having to defend himself quite a bit. And so if he sounds defensive, it's because he's having to defend himself uh, quite a bit. Uh, but here in verse 23, he's emphasizing that everything he does every day, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. What an interesting statement. But Paul, aren't you an apostle? Yes. Aren't you set apart from before birth? Yes. Aren't you called by Jesus Christ, baptized, elected salvation? Yes. And yet you're still concerned you might slip up and fall away? Yes. Huh? But I know that I won't because of the gospel. And so for the sake of the gospel, I'm going to let the word about Jesus' resurrection continue to be the truth in my life. And in that, I can never fall away. That's a super important distinction there. By myself? I can fall away. With Jesus as my king, I can't fall away. That's where the line in your heart kind of is. Like at what point do you say, yeah, Jesus, I got it. I'm okay, right? And then you just never look back. I don't think any of you are there. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. You, you wouldn't be here. Right. So I don't say this so that you'll be afraid. I say this so you'll see that it is the normal cost normal walk of the Christian life to find uncertainty in the steps that you take. And that Paul himself was, was feeling this right now as he writes to this congregation and he's trying to plead with them. Like, look, I, I really don't need anything from you. I want to give you something. He's, he's trying to drive that idea home. And then he asks the question, 24, uh, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run but only one receives the prize. And, you know, that's a stupid question, right? Yeah, of course you know that. Everybody knows that, right? I mean, silver's, what, first loser? I think I've heard it said that way sometimes. You get a real silver, I think you earned it. But at the same time, everyone who gets second knows it's not first. I mean, you know it right away. And you get to the final four and you get to the last game and you lose. And what do you do? You cry. Big grown men on the court lying there crying. Why? Because it hurts. Because we run to get the prize. That's what we do. Is that good? Paul says it's kind of good. Run, that you may obtain it. Now, what race is he talking about? And this is really important. Because you could see it as the race of becoming a better Christian. Like we're all in this race and we're supposed to become a better Christian, so run so you'll be the first place. Hmm. <laughs> if something doesn't jive though in that, right? It's kind of like about me and pride at some point. So, so what's he really talking about? Is it a race against other Christians or other people? No, no, the, the race is against yourself. Any, any real runner will tell you that too, by the way. But, but the race is against yourself. Uh, 
you are the one that must run toward the prize and everything in this world, including your carnal nature, your flesh, your inner man that's wicked, doesn't want you to run at all. It's going to grab your feet, make you trip, make you tired, put stuff in your ears, cover your eyes, going to do anything it can to slip you up. Huh? So Paul says that, well, don't let it. You know, he doesn't say this is a theological problem that cannot be solved and you must just sit there. No, no, no. He just he just says, so run. Run where on the path of life. You mean toward the tomb? Yes, pastor says toward the tomb. Run toward death. Run through life knowing you're running toward death. It'll change the way you walk. I'll tell you that for sure. He says the same thing in verse 25. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. And I mean, I, I know this. I'm sure most of you know this. If you haven't played sports, you've maybe taken a musical instrument or you've tried your hand at something that isn't easy until you do it more than once. Right? And then you can't just do it more than once by yourself and get good very quickly. It really helps if someone outside of you says, now here's a box, stay inside the box and do it this way. And you do it that way and you get good. What Paul's saying here, so do that with your faith. Do that with the Holy Spirit you've been given. Don't do it as if you've got the power to actually become better. That's not what he's saying. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying now that God has called you, run. Now that you hear him say, jump, jump. What does he say to you? I mean, again, with your personal life, with your personal better, what journey are you on? Whose story in the Bible is yours this week? I'm with Peter and Paul again, right? That's where I'm at this week. Who are you with? And if you're not, why not? Why aren't you into someone there who's going to feed you? Whether that's reading a psalm, whether that's reading the Proverbs, whether that's reading a gospel, whether that's reading about King David or Abraham or what have you. The the great threat right now to Christianity, period, is Christians not reading the Bible. Period. All denominations across the world right now. We do not exercise self-control in all things. We have time management for everything except for the Bible. And I'm not saying this so that you'll personally feel real bad. Please don't hear that. I'm saying this is like a sickness that we all got. We're all scrapping for time. That's what's missing in our lives is time. And so it makes it so hard to get to this kind of thing that does take discipline. Paul says, exercise self-control over my body. It means, you know, it's what time? Well, what part of the day I go to read the Bible and my body says, my body says no. I don't feel like it. It's my body talking right there, right? And Paul says, exercise discipline over your body so as to win. Which just means open the Bible and read it. And maybe you're like, I got nothing out of it that day, Pastor. I'm like, I don't care. You won. (laughs) You won. You should have got a lot out of it by the fact that you did not do it. You get to look back and say, Jesus' word was in my life today. And I didn't do that. I never put his word in my life. Even when I opened the Bible and read it, I didn't do that. He did that. And that life, right, that life, that's the gift that we have to share with each other here. With every neighbor in the pew around you, we all are on that path, no matter what else we're carrying at home. Every athlete, self-control, 
to receive a perishable wreath. Again, we an imperishable. We're running towards something that is so much bigger than we can possibly imagine. And so he says, I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air. And he's not talking about shadow boxing. Uh, he means when he's going to practice hitting something, he's going to practice hitting something. So if that's what you're going to do, do it. Well, Christians aren't really about striking people with our fists. We are about controlling our tongue in all things, in all things, so that the tongue becomes a source of truth and beauty and comfort. And when that happens among us, what you have is peace. And when that happens in your family, what you have is love. So Christ brings these things as gifts, but again, they're not just gifts that we get to eat like cake, right? Uh, they're more like gifts we get to do like go for a jog, right? Like you, you are involved. And I don't want to belabor it so that you think for the next forever, all Pastor Fist is going to be saying is I need to do more. That's the last thing I want you to hear. I'm just telling you, we're on a journey. And in this journey, our self-control is a gift. And the more we're like, huh, you mean I can actually try? And, and I'm like, yeah, you can try. I'll forgive you when you fail too. Yeah? Uh, the, the more we're going to do. And that goes from what we do as a parish to, again, what you do as a family to how you impact your work life or your school or any of these things where you master your tongue. Because you're, you're running toward the tomb, you know how to sing now. Just a couple more verses here, and then we're, we're really at the end. Um, I discipline my body, verse 27, and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Look, a lack of self-control is a very common American problem. There are a lot of things that they sell us, which are, quite frankly, addictive in nature. Um, I have coffee with me this morning. Uh, I'm fully aware that I can't quit coffee or that if I do, I start again. Um, it's just a fact. Well, there's a lot of things in American life that are like that, both in the sense of they're addictive and in the sense of it's not exactly sin, but also in the sense of too much of it probably isn't helping you. And this is where self-control again is just the awareness that I don't have to let anyone else tell me what to do. I don't have to let any other thing compel me what to do. As a Christian, I'm a free man now. And so I'm not going to be mastered by anything. I've got a master named, named Jesus. Now, I say that knowing, again, I, I, coffee's mastered me. I mean, if you, want to, if you want to make a fight out of it, coffee's mastered me. But no, it hasn't. I've given it to Jesus. It's his. It's his coffee. I thank him for it. I say hallelujah for it. And then move on. Point is self-control and the freedom you have, well, to run toward the tomb. In the name of Jesus.